First Thessalonians five. And as announced in the bulletin, our text this morning is found in verses nine through eleven. But of the times and the seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them, as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. For ye are all the children, that word children there must mean sons, for ye are all the sons of light and the sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. Therefore let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober, for they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for an helmet, the hope of salvation. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also ye do. And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake and be at peace among yourselves. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward all men. See that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. Rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Quench not the spirit, despise not prophesying, prove all things, hold fast that which is good, abstain from all appearance of evil, and the very God of peace sanctify you wholly, and I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he that calleth you, who also will do it. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with an holy kiss. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read unto all the holy brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you be with you. Amen. Our text, as we said, is found in the verses 9 through 11. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, 
but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together, and edify one another, even as also ye do. Were you here last Sunday morning, beloved? <coughs> you will recall how that we called your attention to the three verses that immediately precede this text, <coughs> namely the verses 6 through 8 of this chapter. And we did that under the theme, the exhortation to spiritual vigilance. <coughs> you will recall how that we reminded you how that the apostle here is especially desires that we should be vigilant with respect to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think I mentioned this before, not only last Sunday morning, but previously when we were here. All the preaching of the gospel, beloved, to the church of Jesus Christ, and that means also to you, is with a view to preparing a certain people for the coming of the Lord. That's what all preaching is about. And it stands to reason that if that is the purpose of all the preaching in the Church of Jesus Christ, <coughs> that it is of paramount importance that the church keep in mind constantly the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> we must be vigilant. That means wide awake. As the apostle says in the verses preceding this text, and not sleeping. You understand? In the spiritual sense of the word. Not drunken. In the spiritual sense of the word. So that we become spiritually unbalanced. We're not able properly to give uh, objective and spiritual assessment and value to the things which we see and hear and touch and handle. As I pointed out to you, a drunken man doesn't know where he is, where he is going, and how he's going to get there. He doesn't know that. He's insensitive. He's unbalanced. And in the spiritual sense of the word, this is also true. When you are spiritually drunken, you don't know where you are, where you are going, and how you're going to get there. You don't know that. And so it must not be in the church of Jesus Christ. We must be spiritually alert. 
And that certainly means, of course, that we are aware of the times in which we live. And particularly are looking for those signs of Christ's coming which the scriptures have repeatedly uh, presented to us that warn us that he is on his way to return to us in order that when he comes, you may not be caught as a thief in the night, but waiting for him, expecting him, living in hope. And I pointed out to you how that this exhortation is necessary because though it is true we are the sons of the day and the sons of light, we have that in a flesh that is always evil, that never desires that which is good, and that certainly is not looking for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. In that respect, we are no different than the children of darkness. And I pointed out to you, remember, these children of darkness are not simply the children of the world, but they are also in the church. They come up in the organic life of the church. They are the reprobate in the church. The church always has to reckon with them. When they become a majority, the church is in trouble. That was true in your history, too. I just got through reading about it in your minute book. Terrible. Terrible history. We must understand that we are the children of light. We have been called out of darkness into light. And we have been called to look for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, we must be alert not spiritually drunken, not spiritually sleepy, but wide awake. Now, the apostle <clears throat> in our text gives us still more reason for being vigilant. <clears throat> he says, for, that word for there in verse 9, should really be translated because, because God hath appointed us not to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. And that means, beloved, to put it very succinctly, we have a date. And we have a date to meet Jesus. All of you know what that means, of course, especially our young people. Always talking about dates. You know, we got a date. We got a date to meet my boyfriend. And I'm telling you, you don't. You don't go to sleep when you got a date. At least I wouldn't think so. 
put on your best dress. You sit and put on your best makeup and the best smelling perfume. That's what you do. You got a date. You get ready for the date. You live in anticipation of the date. That's what the text is about. The Lord has not appointed us to wrath, but he has appointed us. He has made for us a date. A date in which we are going to receive all of our salvation in its perfection. We have it now in principle, but you haven't seen anything yet. You've seen only a very little of your salvation, beloved. That's all coming and will come to you when we have our date. And that date is with Christ. That's what my text is about. We have an appointment. Oh, I'll have more to say about that in a moment. <clears throat> but that's the idea. And if that's the case, you understand, you will be quite vigilant. You will be quite spiritually prepared. And the reason, the ground for this expectation, for this appointment with Christ, rests on the fact that it is He who is our Savior. That's what the Apostle is talking about in verse 10. Who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, in a minute what that means. We should live together with him. We have a Savior who saves us unto the uttermost and who will bring us into that salvation when he comes in all of its perfection. And if this is the key, and it is, then we will be comforting and edifying one another, even as the Apostle says we do. He's speaking here, of course, first of all, to the church of Thessalonica, who lived in this anticipation, very deeply conscious of the date which they had with Christ. You can keep these remarks in mind, then you will be ready to listen to what the Word of God has to say to us in these texts. And I call your attention to the instructive in this text under the theme, Our Appointment to Salvation. <clears throat> and I have you noticed with me, first of all, the appointment to what? <clears throat> Second place, on what ground? 
Thirdly, with what comfort our appointment to salvation. Appointment to what? Appointment on what ground? And appointment with what comfort? The apostle says, for God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. That word appointed is the word that is often translated in the New Testament as foreordained. You find this word often in connection with the teaching of the scriptures relative to election. And the Bible speaks as it does so frequently in the New Testament especially of our election. Then it speaks of that election in terms of our having been appointed for ordained. And that, of course, uh, presupposes the counsel of God. Though the text does not in any way uh, indicate literally the idea of the counsel, that is certainly implied in the term appointed. We have been appointed, that means sometime in the past. Prior to our existence in this world, God appointed us unto salvation. Already here, if I may anticipate the last part of my sermon this morning, there is an element of great consolation, comfort for the church of Jesus Christ. You know, in the Arminianistic age, if your salvation is dependent upon you. It's a pretty frivolous and precarious thing, isn't it? Nothing sure about it. That's why the Arminian is never sure either. He may rejoice in the fact that he's a child of God today, but tomorrow he may just have the opposite experience, that he is lost. That's characteristic of Arminianism. They never know. They're nothing sure. But the gospel that God has given unto us to preach and which we must clearly understand, beloved, is that as far as our salvation is concerned, it is set, absolutely set. It has been appointed. And it can never be changed. It has been written in the firm counsel of God, that we must have salvation in Christ. No matter what happens to you, no matter how weak and paltry you may be, 
If you have been appointed unto salvation, you're going to get it. That's the idea of appointment. And as I suggested in my introductory remarks, there is also in this idea the idea of having set for us a time. We have been appointed unto salvation that is coming to us in Christ. That's why I said we got a date. We didn't decide that. We didn't sit down with God and say, well, now we're going to determine together when uh, we're going to be saved and when we're going to have all of this. Oh, no, this was all done by God for us. He made a day. And he wants you and me to know about it. He made a date. And oh, I'm telling you all through the history of the Christian church, from paradise, the first until paradise, the last, is full of dates. That's why history is so important, too, you know, and that's why our children are taught very young uh, to know not only church history, but Bible history. Bible history is the sum total of dates which God has made, in which he is realizing throughout the history of the world the salvation of his church. That's so beautifully illustrated, for example, in the case of the flood. That was a date. Noah had a date. He kept it, too. When he and his family were saved in the ark, and the world was destroyed. It was a, a precursor, a forerunning picture of the destruction of the world at the last day, which we and our children and our grandchildren will probably, will no doubt see, and not too far off. We have a day that belongs to our predestination, to our foreordination. And that bears out what I said to you last Sunday. Christ cannot come at any time. He can only come on time. He won't come a moment before the day. You mustn't conceive of Christ, the great bridegroom, sitting there waiting for his bride. Impatiently waiting, like some of our bridegrooms have to do, because it takes the bride a long time to get ready. That's not the case. It's all going to be on time. God has made a date. And that very moment, that very moment, when all history has run its course, and all of the counsel of God has been fulfilled, Christ comes. What a moment that's going to be when our date is there. You have been appointed, says the Apostle, 
you have been appointed of God. And you, sons of light, sons of the day, have been appointed of God in Christ to be saved with an everlasting salvation. <clears throat> you have not been appointed unto wrath. That's a negative way, of course of the Apostle speaking in the text because he he still has in mind those uh, children of darkness who sleep and are drunken in the night. <clears throat> you are not of that. You have been chosen. You have been foreordained to be sons of God that positively to the church. You are the sons of God. And I say sons, and I, you remember I called your attention to it when we were reading verse 5, ye are all the children of light. That word children is sons, and that word sons there reflects on our legal juridical relation to God in Christ. Not, it does, the term does not reflect so much on the fact that we are born of God, though that is also true. There's no question about that. We are also the children of God. There's no question about that. We have been born of God. We have been born again from God ab from above through the second birth. In that sense of the word, we are the children of God. There's no question about that. But the apostle is not talking about it from that point of view. He's talking about us from the point of view of our juridical, our legal relation to God in Christ. And that means then that we are sons and daughters of the Most High. And that means also that before God we are placed in a certain legal relationship in which we have rights. We have the right of eternal life. We have the right of justification. We have the right of all that God has laid up in store, which the scriptures call our air dump. We are heirs with Christ. And you all know that, of course. When you are an heir, you come into an inheritance through a legal process. The probate court, perhaps. Or one who is a court-appointed administrator. Administrates the affairs of an estate. And so you become an heir. That's a legal thing. And that's the idea here, too. We have certain rights. We have a certain inheritance. We have a name and a place in heaven. We have eternal life. All of this is tied up in Christ who is coming and who, when he comes, will bring all of this to us. We have a date. 
God has not appointed us unto wrath, but to the obtaining of salvation. What a sharp contrast this is to the wicked. And they must hear that too if they're in the church this morning. You're going to be caught in that day as a thief, by a thief. Unprepared, not ready. Destroy. That's your future. You have nothing good to say to the wicked. No comfort. For the wicked. Never find that in the Bible. For the sons, the daughters of the Most High, God hath appointed you to salvation. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice again, if you please, the full name of the mediator. Our Lord Jesus Christ. I need not to take the time this morning to explore that idea. I did that for you last week. So I will not repeat what we said there. But you must understand that when the apostle uses the Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ, is referring to the Savior in the fullest possible sense of his mediator's capacity. He is our Savior as Lord. He is our Savior as Jesus. He is our Savior as Christ, the appointed servant of God. And that means, too, beloved, that Christ is appointed. Your election, your foreordination, is always connected to the foreordination and appointment of Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ. God has determined upon him that in him and through him all of our salvation shall come. It doesn't rest on the will of man. It doesn't rest upon anything that we may do. But it is all bound up in him. That's why the Apostle says, in verse 10, who died for us. That's important. That's the basis of your hope. That's the legislative act whereby you are justified. You understand? Who died for us? 
is an atoning death. A sacrificial death that atoned for, that paid for all our sin, all our guilt, and removed all of that guilt. That's all implied in who died for us. He did that, of course, on the cross. <coughs> he died in our stead, in our behalf. Oh, when I think of it, and I've thought about this so often, and the more you think about it, the more wonderful this thing becomes. You know, you heard the story about the crucifixion. Hundreds and hundreds of times, no doubt. Did it ever stick itself in your mind and in your soul that he who died on that cross was your representative? He came to take your place. That's what you should do. And I... You and I should be nailed to a cross. <clears throat> right. We deserve to have all of the vials of God's holy wrath turned on us. We deserve that. Just one sin merited the eternal wrath of God. Don't forget that. When we read in my text, God has not appointed us unto wrath. That doesn't mean that the wrath of God over against our sin is not to be reckoned with. Oh, he, he reckoned with that wrath of his over against our sin. Don't you ever forget it. That cross became the very means, the very pivotal point in which God in the center of history pours out all of his wrath over our sin. We do not become saved, beloved, without atonement, without the sacrificial death of the Son of God in the flesh. Every last drop of blood that flowed from Calvary's tree was a blood that was poured out in our favor to ameliorate, to satisfy the hot and holy wrath of God over against all our sin. Oh, yeah. We were not appointed unto wrath, but God's wrath over against our sin must be met on the cross. And when I consider that, how that my Savior, in my stead, allowed himself to be hanged on that tree, in order that then, not simply Pontius Pilate and the Jews and all the wicked might rail at him, but God might rail at him and might pour out all his wrath upon him and concentrate upon him until there was no wrath that was left for us. Do you understand that? 
That's the cross. Oh, yes. God couldn't take us to heaven. God couldn't give us salvation without the satisfaction of his holy wrath over against our sins. He doesn't look at sin through the fingers. Oh, no. He deals with our sins. And he dealt with it. Who died for us. So that we wouldn't have to die. Who suffered the wrath of God in our stead. So that we wouldn't have to suffer it. And who through his faithful deliverance of himself to death. The shameful and bitter death of the cross. Merited for us righteousness, so that my sins no longer exist, not even those which I'm going to commit today and tomorrow. I can say that to you this morning, beloved. You have no sin. You're right. Oh, that doesn't mean you aren't going to sin anymore. That doesn't mean that you don't have to repent anymore. That you confess your sin. Oh, yes, you'll do that to the dying day. But your sins are gone. You believe that? Then you're righteous. You see that? God can't be wrathful over against you anymore. He's not going to bring you into judgment to try you for your sins anymore. That's done. That was done 1900 years ago. There, our sin problem was forever finished. have the right of eternal life. And what is so striking is, beloved, though the text does not literally say that, it certainly suggests it, that that same Jesus who died for us rose again. That we should live together with him. That means that he is alive. He arose. And he arose, beloved, is a testimony, is the certification, divine certification, that your sins are gone, that you are righteous. You have the right of eternal life. You are justified before God. That's what that means. He rose again, not in order to justify you, but to give to you the testimony, the confidence, the assurance that you are justified. The Apostle Paul in Romans 5 says, Wherefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are justified. And that means we will never be brought into judgment for our sins again. That was done once for all on the cross. That's what that means. And so we can go in peace. 
in the confidence that God looks upon us in his favor, that he has justified us and will justify us again in the day of his coming, when he shall say before all men and angels and devils, these people, my sons and my daughters, have no sin. They are righteous in my sight. They may go into everlasting glory. Because my son died for them and rose again from the dead. And God raised him from the dead because he had accomplished in his death the complete satisfaction for all of sin. In the completed work of Christ, we find the absolute ground for our appointment to salvation. Oh, I tell you, this morning, beloved, if, if, any, if there was any doubt about what I have just said to you, you couldn't have any assured. You couldn't even have any hope. Our hope and our assurance rest upon fact, indubitable fact, that Christ made perfect satisfaction before God for all our sins. And he merited at the same time the right to be clothed with the garments of everlasting salvation and glory. We don't have that yet. That's why Christ must come. And he will. That's why we have a day. That's why we must be waiting and vigilant, sober, looking for the coming of Christ. Because when he shall appear, then we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. We are like him now only in a very small figure. I tell you, you know, this skin and bones is going to be 73 years old next week. That's quite a ways down the line. I've been looking at it for 73 years. It's flesh. There's very much good in it. And 
nothing really praiseworthy in it. In fact, it doesn't look very much different from the flesh of the ungodly that are in the world. If I didn't tell you from the bottom of my heart that I was a child of God, you might not ever know how. look like the world. We dress like the world. We live like the world. And we think that we are doing what we are not to do. We don't look like we're ready to go to heaven. As I suggested to you, one of the times we were here yesterday, pretty nice down When you have a palace to live in, and maybe an extra one out by the lake someplace, and two or three cars standing in the yard, it's probably three weeks. And you have nice wages. And when you get a little bit too old to work, the government will take care of Can it be any nicer here? Just think about it. That's the way we live. That's what we think too. Don't be so too quiet now. Don't try to tell me, oh no, you never have anything like that. I don't believe you if you say so. Don't believe it because you're just like I am. That's what I do. And I tell you, when you get to be 73 years old, then you become very conscious about that world that you, you're still here, you know, you're still working. And I can still preach, you know. In fact, I don't even feel like it. I don't feel like it. Pretty nice. And when you say that, think that, and you say that, and you understand, in your own mind, you tell Christ to stay where he is. You say to God, oh, you may be made a date, all right, that may be true, but uh, don't keep it yet. Hold off! And beloved, if we live according to our flesh, this is precisely what we are going to do. So it must not be. You are the sons of the light, sons of the day. That means you hate sin. You hate your own flesh. You see your own weakness. You desire your salvation. You look in hope and you pray and you watch for the day. For the appearance. For the appointment. You have this Christ in whom is all of the perfection of your salvation. 
That's my text. The apostle says, if that's the case, <clears throat> then comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as you do. As I suggested to you all ago, there is no comfort at all for the wicked, for the ungodly. They have no comfort. They have no future except destruction. But the comfort for the children of God and comfort, and that's the way our Heidelberg Catechism uses that term too, is always a consideration of the mind, of a sanctified mind. Comfort is an experience that takes place within you, in which you think, which you contemplate, the great good over against the oppressed evil. And in your contemplation, you see how that that present evil that you have is necessary for you unto the attainment of that great good that comfort. If I were to say to you this morning that you had cancer of the liver, And I suppose the doctor would give you the sentence. You have so much time to live. And you better get your house in order. It'd be a terrific blow. You're going to die. And he wouldn't say anything more about that. I'm telling you, you should be frustrated, overcome with grief. God doesn't tell us, beloved, only that how bad we are, but he also tells us, and I've been trying to do that this morning, with all the power that has made you to become his children. You are good in his sight. But you have not yet attained unto the perfection of that goodness that waits for the coming of Christ. And all of your present experience must be preserved to bring you to that state, to Christ, in whom is all of your salvation. That's comfort. When our very sin and our corrupt ways becomes a servant to bring us to the cross, to bring us to the consciousness of our forgiveness, of our justification before God, to bring us to the hope that stretches out unto the perfect day, unto the day of the moment of his coming, 
when all of our sin will forever be gone, and my flesh shall drop away, and I shall stand in the brightness of the eternal day, in body and soul. Doesn't make any difference. If I have died and have gone to the grave, and my body lies molding in the grave, or whether I am still here on the earth when he comes. The Apostle Paul has an answer for that. He says, they that are alive when he comes must be saved, and they will be saved. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised, and we shall be changed. And that all that is of the earth earthy shall disappear forever. And he shall stand in the brightness of the day. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words, even as also unto me. What do you talk about when you visit the dead? What do you talk about? a brother who has kind of lost sight of the day of Christ and the appointment and you have to admonish and exhort him that's not just simply the elders work you know that's your business every one of you you must comfort one another you have to say to your brother who walks the faith months We've been appointed to meet Christ. You just get ready. Oh, you have lots of work to do. You can never be silent. You comfort one another, uh, even as also you do. You speak to each other. Encourage one another, especially when you see your brother going in the wrong direction. Grab him by the arm. That isn't the way we say This is the way. We gotta look for truth. We must be ready when we come. May God grant unto you and to me and to our children, to our covenant young people, never to forget this word, but to embrace it with a true and living faith. And when you find that your flesh is strong, put on the helmet of salvation and the breastplate of righteousness and fight against the sin. So that when he comes, it will not be to you as a thief in the night, but it will be the fulfillment of your soul. Come, Lord Jesus. Yea, come quickly. Amen. Our Father, graciously sanctify to our hearts thy holy name. Give us grace to believe it and also to live it. And thou grant that this service may be sanctified unto our hearts, that we may leave this place with the confidence that we are thy sons and daughters, whose hope is in fact moment of our faith, we see 
because we've all become truly impure and corrupt. We must. Let us conclude this service with the oath of number 100. Number 100. <coughs> Forever trusting in the Lord, let's take heed to do his will. So shalt thou dwell within the land, so shalt thou dwell within the land, and he thy needs shall fill. We'll sing the stanzas two and four, two and four of number 100.